0: Good morning. Good morning. I uh, hope that you all had a good Thanksgiving. We had a uh, good time visiting with my folks, and then it's like we got on the cold merry-go-round again, you know. And so uh, my poor wife, and my mother-in-law, and myself all got laryngitis at the same time. But <clears throat> I will say this: if you're going to get laryngitis, get it with other people, so that you all have the mutual frustration of not being able to talk, kind of take some of the pressure off. So. A mixed blessing there, I, I suppose, but um, yeah. Well, now that we have finished our series on the five solas for Reformation Month, we're jumping back into Matthew's Gospel. So go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 10. That's where we'll be this morning, Matthew chapter 10. And we left off at the end of Matthew chapter 9 with Jesus, seeing the crowds that have come uh, to hear his teaching and having compassion on them. And it's in that context that we, we read the well-known passage, the harvest is plentiful. Pray for the Lord of the Harvest to send out laborers. As we come to Matthew ten, it becomes clear that Jesus is the Lord of the Harvest. And as we come to our text this morning, we are going to see He is about to do that very thing. He's about to send laborers out, His twelve disciples. And as we continue through Matthew's Gospel in this morning's text, we will not only learn a little bit more about who these disciples are, uh, but we will see the task that Jesus calls them to as messengers. Of the kingdom of heaven. A task that, in in some similar ways, you and I as Christians are called to participate in today. Let's read our text, Matthew 10, 1 through 15, where we'll be this morning. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of these twelve apostles are these First, Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James the son of Zebedee, John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. When you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Our Lord, we thank you for the scriptures. Lord, we thank you that you have given your word to us that we may read it, hear it, understand it, and do it. And Lord, yet we know that we cannot embrace your word, we cannot understand it rightly as you would have us do, apart from the help of your Spirit. And so as we come to this text in Matthew this morning, we pray for your help. Illuminate the truth of your word to us. Lord, please be with me. Help me to only preach what is according to your word, what is in line with your word. That you would be glorified and your people would would be built up in Christ. Lord, help us to see the calling that you have placed upon us as your disciples. Lord, I do pray for your help, for my my voice, that you would strengthen it, that your people would be able to hear your word today. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as uh, Garrett mentioned earlier, if you're new here with us, welcome. We are glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, Just a quick word about the way that we approach Scripture here. We do what's called expositional preaching. That means we go through a book of of the Bible one at a time. We go verse by verse so that we can explain, understand, and then uh, really do what the text of Scripture is calling us to do. Sometimes we we do a topic, but really the main diet of preaching uh, here at FBC is expositional. We go verse by verse through the Bible so that we can understand God's Word the best we can. So as we come to our text this morning in Matthew, there's three things that we see. First, in verses 1 through 4, Matthew gives us the identity of the disciples. As we go to verses 5 through 10, we see Jesus instructing the disciples in what they're about to do. What is the mission that they are to embark on? And finally, in verses 11 through 15, Jesus describes for the disciples the two possible responses that they'll receive as they go out on their mission. Now, all of Matthew chapter 10 really is a dialogue, uh, Jesus telling his disciples what to expect as they go out. And the portion of this chapter that we're covering this morning is really the introduction uh, to this larger section. First, the identity of the disciples. Jesus, coming out of Matthew chapter 9, discussing the need for laborers, decides to send some out. So he calls to himself, Matthew says in verse 1, his 12 disciples, his 12 disciples with a mission in mind. Now these 12 were the inner circle, right? There were crowds that followed Jesus everywhere, but these 12 were the ones that were there with Jesus. They went with him everywhere. They helped him in his ministry. They were personally chosen and called by him. We saw that back in Matthew chapter 4. Now, 12 is not a random number. It's not a coincidence. It's not by accident that Jesus has chosen 12 instead of 11 disciples or 13 disciples. Really, the number 12 echoes something biblically significant from the Old Testament. The tribes of the nation of Israel. Right? There were 12 tribes. These tribes forming the the offspring of Abraham, the nation of Israel, the Old Testament nation that God had covenantal dealings with. Now Jesus in calling 12 disciples is really pointing towards a new thing that God is doing here as we come into the New Testament. It is a, a new spiritual Israel we could say that is fulfilling, not replacing but fulfilling what was begun in the Old Testament. If you were to look to the end of your Bible in Revelation chapter 21 there's a description of of the city called the New Jerusalem, right? That heavenly city that believers look forward to. And uh, John the Apostle tells us that on that city are written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Really, it's, it's symbolic for the totality of God's covenant people throughout the Old and New Testament. So these 12 disciples are really, uh, you could say, Jesus calling to himself a new nation, a new People. He's doing something new. And he gives them authority, Matthew says in verse 1 authority to cast out demons and to heal every disease and affliction. Now, prior to this, the disciples couldn't do any of these things, right? They did not have the power or authority to do so. But now Christ has placed that authority, his authority, on their shoulders. He's given them the authority of the King of Heaven. And the theme of authority in Matthew's gospel is, is something that we've highlighted over the past few chapters. When we got to the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, uh, we, we see that the crowds marvel at Jesus' authority in what he teaches. Then when we got through Matthew chapter, uh, chapters 8 and 9, we saw Matthew highlight Jesus' authority through his works. And now that authority has been given to Jesus' disciples to do similar things to what he himself has done the disciples just like you and I we don't have any authority of our own but since they're going out as messengers of the king as his representatives they now carry his authority with them just like a federal policeman carries a badge right and that badge is symbolic of the whole weight of the government behind them right you could say the same for a local or county or state policeman as well right it's that idea And it's likely because of this task that Jesus is going to send them out on that in verse 2, Matthew refers to these 12 as apostles. That's the first time we've seen this word in Matthew's gospel, apostles. Now this term, apostles, refers to a messenger who goes out on behalf of another. It's somebody who is sent out to do a particular job for somebody. And of course, later after Christ descends into heaven, uh, his, his 12 disciples will be referred to as Apostles explicitly, right? That'll take on a particular significance. But even here, there's something unique about these 12, these sent out ones, we could say. And then Matthew gives us a list of who they are. Who were the 12 disciples? He tells us in verses 2 through 4, mentioning them by name. First, we have the two sets of fishermen brothers, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, James, and John. We saw Jesus call these men, Bethlehem, Back in Matthew chapter 4, uh, on the shore of Galilee, they're out fishing and Jesus says, come, I will make you fishers of men. And Three of these brothers, Peter, James, and John, will form the inner circle of the inner circle, Jesus' closest disciples. We read that there is a man named Philip, who according to John was from the same town as Andrew and Peter. Philip goes and brings his brother Nathanael to meet Jesus. We see that in John chapter 2. It's likely that Bartholomew, who's mentioned here, is another name for Nathanael. We have Philip and Nathanael. We see Thomas next. Thomas, who will later doubt Jesus' resurrection and then believe. We see Matthew, the tax collector in verse 3, the author of this gospel that we are working our way through. We see a man named Thaddeus, uh, a name that means mama's boy. It's a nickname, a disciple who only speaks one time in all of the Gospels and uh, who who may have had the other name Judas. Not Iscariot, uh, but the other Judas mentioned in Luke and John's Gospel. We see James, the son of Alphaeus, mentioned here. We don't know very much about him. Some in church history have identified him with James the Lesser in Mark 15. Some have identified him with the brother of Jesus. It's hard to tell. Hard to tell from Scripture. We don't have much information about him. And we see Simon the Zealot. A zealot was an anti-Roman political terrorist. Uh, They were seeking to overthrow Roman rule uh, on the Jews. I wonder how he and Matthew, the Roman-employed tax collector, got along. And finally, we see Judas Iscariot, who Matthew tells us would later betray Jesus. Now, Iscariot is not his last name, but the town of his origin. These are the twelve that Jesus is sending out. What a motley crew. What a ragtag bunch of individuals, right? They're from all different cross-sections of society, all different kinds of political allegiances and agendas, all different kinds of trades and backgrounds. Maybe some of them were some good Jewish boys, right? But there's not a single Jewish religious scholar in the bunch. And, And these are the people that Jesus is sending out to represent him. You can imagine what the Pharisees thought about that. It's hardly the team that we might assemble if we were in Jesus' shoes, isn't it? We'd want the best of the best, right? Who's the best preacher? Who's the best evangelist? Who's the best, you know, who's got the best Bible knowledge? Those are the things we would look for if we were assembling a team of people to send out. Uh, but that's not what Jesus does. And, of course, we, we can't judge too harshly because look at us, right? Look at us gathered here today. We have people from upper class, lower class, middle class, blue collar, white collar, working, retired, old, young, shy, bold, mature believers, brand new believers. Right? If you and I passed each other in the grocery store, there's very little chance that we would have a relationship. But what does Christ do? He brings people from all different kinds of backgrounds, different nations, tribes, tongues together as one new The Apostle Paul recognizes this reality in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, "...for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God." And because of him, you and I, well, he's writing to the Corinthians, of course, but to bring it to us, you and I, from all our different backgrounds, are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. What is the effect of Jesus having such a random assortment of people here? in his his group of 12, it becomes very clear that they are not the ones who have the power and the authority. They are simply in his service, and so all the glory goes to him. But think about it for a second, right? Of course, all glory and honor belongs to Christ, amen. What an amazing thing, though, that he would include these 12 men, that he would include us to participate in what he is doing as he advances his kingdom. We're not worthy of that. What a privilege to be called to that. Truly an amazing thing that we can take for granted, but we should not. That we, the low, the despised, right, the foolish in the eyes of the world would be workers for the living God. What a gift of grace. And the reality about the Christian life is the 12 are going to find out is that following Jesus is not a spectator sport. It's not one in which we profess to believe these certain things, we go to church and do these certain things, uh, and and then we watch others actually work for the Lord, right? That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is not something where we believe in Christ but only let others talk about him in, in public, right? No, Christianity is not a spectator sport. Being a disciple of Christ is not a spectator sport, and Jesus is going to send out these disciples and put them to work and so in verses 5 through 10 we see the mission of the disciples Jesus is not sending the 12 on a vacation of course but a very important task he has specific instructions he lays out for the 12 disciples here first in verse 5 he tells them where to go or more actually more accurately where not to go he says go nowhere among the Gentiles enter no town of the Samaritans Uh, literally don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles we were to to read it in the Greek. Uh, Now this isn't because of any racial prejudice that Jesus has. It's simply uh, on one level because these groups were not in covenant with God. Right? God had dealt covenantally with the nation of Israel throughout history that's what the Old Testament uh, sort of focuses on in its storyline and so the Gentile nations those who were not part of Israel They did not have that covenantal relationship with God. Uh, So they were not first in line to hear about the kingdom of heaven and be invited into this new covenant. But there's also a geographical component at play here too. Uh, If we were to turn in your Bibles to a map of Israel or if you were imagining it in your mind, there's Jewish Galilee right here. The area of the Gentiles completely surrounds it up here and the area of the Samaritans covers it down here. Uh, Really what Jesus is saying is, Stay in Jewish Galilee. Don't go outside of this area. That's what he's telling them. And that's further emphasized by what he says in verse 6. He says, go instead, go rather, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This refers to the Jewish people, right? They were the ones who were in covenant with God as descendants of Abraham through the Mosaic covenant. And the immediate promises of the Old Testament, including the coming of the Messiah, uh, those things were given to the Jews. So naturally, they would hear about the gospel first. They're first in line. And so that is where Jesus sends his disciples first. And Paul, in Romans 1.16, brings this up. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So there's a redemptive order, we could say. The Jews had first dibs on the gospel. Now, Jesus describes Uh, The nation of Israel has lost sheep here in verse 6. And that reminds us of what he uh, he sees in them at the end of chapter 9 in verse 36. They're uh, like sheep without a shepherd, Matthew tells us. And Jesus has compassion on them. You see, the nation of Israel had wandered away from their shepherd. They had wandered away from where they should be. They had wandered away from the worship that God desired. And in fact, this metaphor of the sheep and the shepherd is, One that's integral to the mission of the Messiah. Isaiah uh, Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord's laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's that imagery there. We have gone astray like lost sheep. And that's how the nation of Israel is described here as well. And so as Jesus sends out these disciples, the good shepherd, Jesus, is calling his sheep, the lost house of Israel, through the disciples. It's going to be through their message that those lost sheep hear Jesus' voice. It's the very message that Jesus mentions in verse 7. He tells the disciples, as you go, proclaim, preach, declare, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is it that the disciples are to be centered on in in their preaching? What is their message supposed to be? Is it Is it primarily meeting man's felt needs? Is it primarily making the people of Israel feel better about themselves? Is it giving them practical tools for living? Well, no. It's the thing of first importance. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's coming. Are you going to be in it or not? They are heralds. They're messengers going forth to announce the coming of the king. And the disciples aren't supposed to get creative here. They're not supposed to make up their own message. Jesus doesn't say, wing it, just go for it, right? Whatever pops into your head. No, he gives them the message to say the kingdom is at hand. And This is what Jesus himself is preaching back in Matthew 3.10. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The task that Jesus places first in this list of things they are to do is proclamation, preaching, right? This is not an accident. Um, The reality about uh, about Christianity is that it it is a faith that is built on a message. Christianity is built on the declaration of a truthful message. The Christian faith rests on the preaching, we could say, of what God has done. The core message of Christianity is this is what God has done through Christ his son for you. Right. That's the core message. It's not, here's what you need to do to get to God, right? That's a very different message. That's not telling you what's been done. It's telling what you need to do. This is a different message. God has done this. Is there a response? Absolutely. But the response is not the fundamental truth that Christianity rests upon. And so the lost sheep of Israel need to hear this message. They need to know what God is doing. Why did God send this Savior, the Messiah? What is happening? They need to be challenged and encouraged and invited with this message about the kingdom of heaven. But that's not the only job that the disciples are to do. Care of people's souls, that is their main priority, but it's not their only priority. They are to care about the welfare of the body of those they are going to reach. Jesus says that in verse 8. He says also... Along with preaching, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Now if this list sounds familiar, it it should. These are the very things that Jesus himself did in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. Each of these items we saw Jesus do by his own power and his own authority. And so now he is telling them, go do the same thing that I did. Imitate me. Continue what I've been doing albeit with his authority, of course not theirs. But an inevitable question that comes up as we look at this list here, as, as Jesus sends out the 12, is uh, should we as ordinary Christians expect to do these things today? Right? We don't really have an issue with proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, proclaiming the gospel. We're all on the same page there. We know we should do that as Christians. Whether we're, we're faithful in that or not is another question, but we know we should. But what about these other things? Should we be healing the sick? Cleansing lepers, raising the dead, casting out demons. Have you ever wondered that before? Is that something I should be doing? Well, some teach, yes, that we are supposed to do this very thing. Uh, For example, in 2019, Bethel Church in Redding, California, spent two days praying in order to raise the dead body of a sweet little two-year-old girl to no avail. It did not work. It's also a common teaching in charismatic circles that Christians have the very authority of Jesus themselves and we can bind and loose and cast out demons. So we need to ask, right, are these kinds of signs and wonders for all Christians to do or just the 12 apostles? Well, fortunately, the Bible speaks to that. It gives us an answer in Hebrews chapter 2. Turn there briefly for a moment. Hebrews chapter (coughs) 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 3 and 4. We back up to verse 1. The author of Hebrews is talking about how the angels proclaimed the message of salvation at points in the Old Testament. Uh, But now that God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, um, the importance of hearing and responding to the message is all the more greater since God has sent a greater messenger. And so it's in that context that we read in verse 3. This message of salvation was declared at first by the Lord, that's Christ, and it was attested to us by those who heard, those are the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Uh, So the author of Hebrews, again, is talking about this gospel message, the message of salvation, the message of the coming kingdom of heaven. Christ declares this first. The apostles take His message and continue to spread it and and clarify it. Uh, And notice how... The author of the Hebrews identifies these signs and wonders and miracles and gifts, which I think we would all include the things that Matthew's described here, right? Healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, right? Those are signs and wonders and miracles uh, and gifts, absolutely. Uh, But the author of Hebrews identifies those things as being things that God used in a particular way to bear witness, verse 4 says. In other words, to put his stamp of approval and authenticity on the message they were preaching. right? So an apostle comes into town. How do we know what this guy's saying is legit? Well, look at what he just did by the power of God. right? That's what the author of Hebrews tells us the purpose of these signs and wonders and miracles is. They were God's stamp of approval or authenticity on the gospel message. But yet the author of Hebrews also Isolates it down to those who heard. Those are the apostles. And he also speaks in the past tense. That these were things that were happening, but are no longer regularly happening. Right? He's using the past tense here in the text. Now, that's not to say God doesn't do miraculous things today. God can do whatever he pleases. But it is to say that what we see in Matthew chapter 10, based on Hebrews 2, these kinds of signs, miracles, and wonders were special for the apostles to do during their time. Uh, and so we should not expect to be able to just walk around raising the dead, perform miraculous healings, things like that. That was for a particular place and time, the mission and message of the apostles. But what we do have in common with the apostles is the responsibility to spread the gospel message. And not all of us are called to be foreign missionaries to go to other countries. Not all of us are called to be full-time evangelists. Uh, but should we not be concerned with The lost hearing the words of eternal life. Jesus is concerned about the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so he sends out messengers to bring the words of eternal life to them. He calls us to participate in that same work. So think for a moment. Are you concerned with the lost hearing the words of eternal life? Even if you're not sure how to deliver those words to them, is that a burden on your heart? It should be. It should be. Now, according to Jesus, in verse 8, these disciples, as they go out, they're supposed to do these healings and these miracles and spread this message without accepting pay. They're supposed to do it freely. Because why? Well, Jesus says, you received without paying, so give without pay. Jesus did not make the twelve pay before he told them about the gospel. He didn't charge any money to those people in Capernaum who needed healings or demons cast out of them. The gospel is not something that should be paid for. It is not something that should be bought and sold. modern missionaries operate this way too, generally. They go to a people, maybe around the world, right? They don't demand that those people pay them. They don't demand that those people meet their needs before they can share the gospel with them. That's not how it works, right? Uh, They go there freely hoping for support from other places, but not from the ones they're going to reach. They go freely, they go by faith, expecting God to meet their needs. And that's really what the disciples are supposed to do here. Now Jesus, in fact, tells them, don't bring too much stuff in verses 9 and 10. They're not supposed to bring extra gold, silver, or copper that's extra money, right? They're not supposed to bring a big old piggy bank with them. They're not supposed to bring a bag of extra belongings. They're not supposed to bring extra clothes or sandals or a staff. Now, Jesus is not telling them you can't bring anything on this, on this mission trip you're going on. Right? He's not saying they can't bring the essentials. But he's telling them there's no need for them to bring all these extra belongings for their own comfort and security. One, it's going to be a short trip. They're not going to need all this extra stuff. But perhaps more so, Jesus wants the disciples to trust God's provision through those to whom they will evangelize. And as we read the letters of these men... In the rest of the New Testament, we see that they seem to have learned a very important lesson here as they go expecting God to provide for them after Jesus has ascended. And this seems to be what Jesus is referring to, of course, that God will meet their needs and that they don't need to bring these things when he tells them the laborer deserves his food. Instead, those who receive the message of the disciples should help to provide for their needs, for their food, their lodging, as we'll see in the next few verses. So Jesus is sending out these 12 disciples, these apostles, to be messengers of the kingdom, to represent him and carry forth his message to the lost sheep of Israel. And and the disciples are supposed to do this by faith, trusting in God's providence, giving out the message of good news freely like the gift that it is. But as they go through Israel, and as is true in our day too, there will be two responses to their message. There will be two responses to their message a response of receiving it and a response of rejecting it. Let's look at the next couple verses here 11 through 15. Jesus tells them, Whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it, stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. The house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now the ministry that the disciples of Jesus are supposed to do in Galilee is not impersonal. It's not impersonal. They're not uh, just tacking up posters around town and hoping people see it and read it. There's nothing wrong with that, of course, but that's not what they're supposed to do here jesus tells them they're going to need to be interacting with people in the towns and villages they're going to they're going to be personally interacting with their fellow jews and as the case then as is the case now jesus tells them that the message of the kingdom of heaven will be met with one of two responses We look at verse 11 there to go through the towns and villages of galilee and jesus tells them that as soon as they go to a new town they need to find out who is worthy In that place. Now, when you think of that term worthy, what do you think of? Usually we think of deserving, right? Meritous, right? Or meritorious. Uh, We we think of somebody who um, has earned what is coming to them, right? They're worthy of that. But that's not quite what the word here means in the Greek. It conveys the idea of bringing up the beam of a scale. Really, it doesn't have to do with merit or, or worth per se but it has to do with something that's equal, something that's corresponding. So in the context of this passage, Jesus is telling the disciples to, when they go into a town or village, find those who will respond to the gospel in the way that is corresponding to the actual message itself. Find the people who are treating the gospel with the attention it deserves. People who are hearing it, receiving it, accepting it as true. That is the appropriate, worthy response to the gospel. It doesn't have to do with the, the worth of the people, but their response. And it is with these people who respond in a worthy way to the gospel that the disciples are supposed to live with uh, until they're done in that village. Now, that might seem uh, kind of imposing to us today, right? But in, in the time of Jesus, that was normal Middle Eastern hospitality, right? It was very common. And in fact, it was, it was more uncommon not to host strangers in your home and feed them and care for them. Uh, than it was to provide those things for them. And so these disciples need to find out who is worthy in this town or village. (coughs) Wow, I'm sorry, that was very loud. Need to find another way to cough next time. Uh, But they would need to go from house to house, right? That's really the, the pattern that Jesus seems to tell them here in verse 12. As you enter the house, greet it. As you enter the house, greet it. So they're probably going from place to place, seeing who is worthy here. In the first place they find, of course, that's where they will stay. Now this greeting that Matthew describes for us is probably like what we read in Luke 9, 5. Peace to this house. Peace to this house. It's speaking a message of, of peace. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Because the greeting of the disciples should be one of peace because what is their message a message of? Peace. It is a message primarily of peace. Of peace. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of peace. Peace between God and sinful man. It's a kingdom of reconciliation, of redemption, of peace. God Himself is the God of peace. And so, in a way, it would seem that when the disciples extend their greeting of peace to a house, or to the people in the house, we, we could say, they're offering the peace of God to his sinful people. They're saying, this is what's available. right? There is peace with God in the kingdom of heaven. That's kind of implicit in their greeting here. But here in verse 13, we start to see the two possible responses that they may encounter. Of course, if a house is worthy, Jesus tells them, the disciples are to let their peace come upon it. Let their peace rest there. They're to stay there more than that. Uh, if the house and the people in it receive the message of the kingdom of heaven, they receive the message of good news of the Messiah, they receive the gospel, then the disciples are to pronounce the very peace of God over them. That's kind of what's happening, right? Remember, the disciples are messengers of the king. They're representing him, and they're declaring the peace of the king of heaven to those who receive him through receiving those he sends out. And of course, this is the result of receiving the King of Heaven, of receiving Christ, receiving the Gospel by faith. It's peace with God. Romans 5.1 is peace with God. Is this not also the song that the angels sing? The night Christ was born, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. Is this not what the Apostle Paul tells us that God fundamentally does through sending Christ? Colossians 1.19-20, for in Him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. At the core of the Christian message is this is what God has done to make peace between himself and sinful men. So for those who hear this message who trust in the king of heaven who believe that his work is sufficient to deal with their sins, that the cross and the resurrection is enough that He alone can redeem them. To those who believe that message, there is real, eternal, lasting peace made between them and a holy God, right? There's always that question, how can I be right with God? Well, it's through Christ, through faith in Him alone. And that's the heart of the message that these disciples are going out with, and that has not changed for 2,000 years. So to those who receive the disciples, the messengers, really, who receive the king, Jesus, there is peace. And Jesus tells them that, let that peace remain there. They can tell those people, you have peace with God through faith in Christ. But at the same time, Jesus describes a second kind of response that the disciples will encounter, that of the unworthy house. Jesus says if they greet a place, but if the response is not worthy, let your peace return to you, verse 13. Now what would that look like, an unworthy response to this message? Well, it could be outright mockery, right? could be, oh, you guys are a bunch of lunatics. Get out of here, you know, making fun of, oh, you worship that Messiah, you're crazy. So, you know, could be that response. That would be an unworthy response to the gospel. Maybe another response would be, oh, I just don't really want to hear about it right now. Close the door. That's an unworthy response to the gospel as well. Maybe another response would be apathy. Well, that's okay for you guys, but no, nah, that's not really for me. I think I'm going to stick with the temple sacrifices. I'm going to stick with what I got going. It's pretty good. I I don't think I really need that. That Jesus stuff. Three different responses, but all unworthy. All unworthy. None of these responses are actually in line with what the gospel demands and proclaims. None of these responses are trusting Christ, repenting of sin, and taking the message of the kingdom seriously. And when a house responds in such a way, really, when a house responds in any other way than receiving the king and his messengers, Jesus tells the disciples to let their peace return to them, right? Their greeting of peace in the name of the king has not been received or accepted, and so it is no longer valid. They're taking it back, There is no peace for those who refuse the messengers of the king. And in fact, Jesus is, is very clear. Not only is there no peace for those who refuse the messengers, there is actually judgment, judgment. Look at what Jesus says in the next two verses tells them in verse 14, if there is nobody in a town, right? If they go to a place and nobody listens to the disciples, if nobody receives them, if nobody cares about what they have to say, then what they are to do is shake the dust from their feet when they leave that place. Now, that might seem like an innocent enough gesture, right, to us, um, but this was actually a pretty serious sign of condemnation in this culture and in this time. You see, this is something that the Jews would do, right? In first century Judaism... Uh, much of of the Jewish people wanted to do nothing with Gentiles to the point of coming in contact with them could make one unclean, right? So what they would do after traveling through Gentile lands is they would kick off the dust from their feet as a sign of saying, I don't want that, that unholy dirt on me. That's what they were, in effect, saying. This is something Jews would do towards Gentiles. And yet this is what the disciples, these Jewish men, are supposed to do, not to the Gentiles, but to their fellow countrymen who reject the Messiah. Now think about the significance of that for a second. What message would that communicate? In effect, Jesus is saying that if there are those in Israel who reject the messengers of the Messiah, of the King, then they themselves are to be considered unholy, no more in covenant with God than the Gentiles are. That's, that's pretty serious stuff. That's pretty serious stuff. Really, God is presenting the terms and conditions for the new covenant here. It's through Christ alone. And whoever rejects that message has no relationship with God. To reject the Savior that God has sent would be to reject the covenant relationship with the God of their fathers, for the Jewish people. And, and by virtue of that, they would be practically Gentiles. That's what Jesus is saying here. But it's also consistent with what Jesus declared back in Matthew 8, that the true sons of the kingdom are not the ones who have descendants from Abraham, but they are the ones who have faith in the one whom the God of Abraham sends. And so on one level, those who reject the Messiah, Jesus is saying, end up being rejected by him. But Jesus goes one step further in verse 15. And he gives his, his strongest statement of emphasis here, right? In the King James, it's verily I say to you, right? That, that strong word, truly I say to you. In other words, take this seriously. That's what Jesus is saying. Those in Israel who reject the Messiah's messengers will receive not just dust being kicked off the feet, but a great judgment. A great judgment. And in fact, Jesus goes so far as to say that those towns who reject him, the judgment they will receive will be far greater than what Sodom and Gomorrah received. Right? Sodom and Gomorrah, for those who are unfamiliar, those are the two most wicked cities in the Old Testament. God destroyed by raining fire from heaven upon them, completely obliterating them. It's hard to think of a judgment greater than that, isn't it? And yet Jesus says that'll be child's play compared to what these towns in Galilee will incur if they reject me. Why would Jesus say something like this? Right? Why would these towns receive a worse judgment? After all, weren't they specially loved by God? Didn't they have a special relationship with him? Well, remember that with the coming of Christ, any covenantal relationship is based on Christ, faith in him. So if they're rejecting Christ, they're rejecting that covenantal relationship. They're rejecting God's terms for relationship. But secondly, Sodom and Gomorrah had a level of ignorance that these Israelite towns did not have. Right? Sodom and Gomorrah, they were pagan Gentile towns. They had no idea who Yahweh was. They didn't receive the Ten Commandments and the law at Sinai. They didn't have the Torah. They didn't have any of those things. And they were judged pretty strictly just for sin. But how much greater a judgment God promises to bring on those who know more, who are not ignorant of the truth and yet ignore it. God had given the law to Israel. He had sent the prophets throughout the the, the centuries prior. He sent John the Baptist in Jesus' day to call the people back. And now he sent his own son, the greatest of all messengers. So for the Israelites Who are not ignorant of who God was, they were not ignorant of God's promises and prophecies, for them to reject the one who fulfills all those things would be the height of rebellion. Right? To to bring it down to a, a, I don't like to use my kids too much in sermon illustrations, but you know, there's a pretty big difference when your kid does something they don't know they should do, or or they do something they don't know better about, right? Maybe they go play with something fragile and they don't know what's off limits, right? And they break it. Okay, well that's not great. right? That's very different than when you say, don't touch that. And they go, you know what I I mean? You think kids do that? Those are two different responses. And they receive two different kinds of consequences. And so in effect, for these Israelites to encounter the messengers of the Messiah and to reject them after all they knew and after all they had been given, that was the height. Of disobedient rebellion and so Jesus's words here are a great indictment there's a question that's worthy of us to ask too some of us may know a lot some of us may have grown up in church we've read our Bibles a lot we know a lot of the right things to say But have you rejected the message of the kingdom of heaven? Regardless of how much you know, you reject Christ. You do not receive him. That knowledge just makes the judgment of God upon your sin all the more greater. As we go through the rest of Matthew 10, Jesus is going to continue to describe for his disciples some of the things that they can expect, both in the the near timeline of this short-term mission trip, but also their lives as apostles after Christ ascends to heaven. But this particular portion gives us some things to consider, doesn't it? First, what are the ways that Christ is calling you to go out into the world to proclaim the message of the kingdom of heaven? Who are the people that He has placed in your life that don't know Christ and you have not shared Christ with? Where are the opportunities He's given you? Second, what is your response to that message? Is it one of receiving it by faith? If you trusted in Christ, repented of your sin, living a life of discipleship to him, not perfectly, of course, but having peace with God that comes through Christ, or have you rejected that message, bringing condemnation and judgment for rebellion against the high king of heaven? But friends, as long as you have breath, there is still time to believe in him and seek his kingdom. There is still time to have that peace with God through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your mercy. Lord, how kind of you to send forth a Savior for us, to give us your word so that we might hear the message of the kingdom of heaven. Lord, thank you for coming to us to redeem us and save us. We pray you would help us, Lord. Lord, in the the similarity we have with the apostles to be messengers for Christ, show us where we should go and what we should do and help us to be faithful in spreading the gospel and the works of service that we might be able to do for others as a means of uh, demonstrating our sincerity and our love for them. Lord, I pray that if there are any here today who do not know Christ, that they would not ignore this sermon, this message, but that they would receive the King of Heaven by faith, that they would trust Him to save them from their sins, that they would know peace with God through Him. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and the riches that are hidden in it. We love You and ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.